What we're going to do tonight is, if I'm successful, if I'm successful, Jack, you're going to start reading the Old Testament more. If I'm successful, you're going to stop saying, that's just the Old Testament, which is far too commonly said in the church. So I want to start, I want to do a um, talk tonight on, um, I'm going to borrow some language. Do you know who Andy Stanley is? Okay. So he's been the subject of much controversy lately because he suggested that the church should unhitch, unhitch itself from the Old Testament. And I'm going to suggest uh, that we shouldn't. So the question is, why shouldn't we? We unhitch. From Old Testament. Okay? So this is what we're going to be looking at. And so we've looked at various things in the Old Testament. We talked about creation and sacrifices, and obviously we've had to be selective because there's a lot there. But I think one of the most pressing questions for most of you is, how do I use the Old Testament? What do I do with it? So we've studied, we've, we've spent some time talking about the Old Testament, but I want you to go away from here able to use it and to use it properly. And I think that there's far too much of a dismissive spirit in the church today toward the Old Testament for one simple reason. Well, I'll give you two sim simple reasons. We don't understand the purpose of the law. That's the first one. And we have no idea what the word fulfillment actually means. And so when the New Testament writers say things like, oh, that was fulfilled in Christ, in our head, we interpret that as that's no longer necessary. And I'm going to propose to you tonight that biblically, both of those are errors. That when we talk about fulfillment, we're not talking about it's said and done, toss it out, it's an expired document. And when we talk about not being under the law, what we're not saying is throw the law out, it's not relevant anymore. That's not what we're saying. So that's basically where I'm going to go so you have a pretty clear idea. Just to give you an idea here about some of the things that people say, and then I want to hear from you, because I, I would like for you to tell the rest of the class and to communicate to me, in addition to what I'm communicating, why do you think that people tend to say, well, that's just Old Testament. That's just Old Testament, kind of a dismissive way. But before I get there, I'll give you a minute or two to think on that. Here's, here's a couple of quotes from Andy Stanley. He says, the Ten Commandments have no authority over you, none, to be clear, Thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. End quote. Second quote is he says, Paul never leverages the Old Covenant as a basis for Christian behavior. Paul never leverages the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, Old Covenant, as a basis for Christian behavior. So I, I think I can, uh, with due respect to Pastor Andy, I think I can falsify both of those statements pretty quick. But just kind of talk to me a little bit. Why, why do you think that a lot of people have a, a lot of Christians have a dismissive spirit toward the Old Testament scriptures? 
Okay, yeah, so the specific application is harsh of some texts, yeah. They, they kind of just want to live by grace. Okay, yeah. We could take that in about four or five different directions because there's a lot of things around that subject of grace that are kind of play into it too, but. Um, Okay, yeah, and again, thank you for that, because fulfillment doesn't necessarily mean done. I don't agree with that. But that's often how it's used. Okay, let's keep going with this. But the uh, people uh, that read the Bible, they don't relate to the time that it happens there. Okay, that's good, yeah. The guy... Uh, everything's uh, fast food here and whatever or something like that. They, uh, they expect the Bible to be the same way. Okay, good. So if you don't have a similar incident to even apply a text to, how, how do you, what do you do with it? Okay, over here. What applies or not applies to the new covenant. Okay. So there's a mixed feeling of what it is that it really yeah. applies. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Okay. In the place that that it deserves to have. Okay, good, good, and um, that's good. I thought where you, you were going to go with that is uh, is that people tend to hear more sermons from the New Testament than the Old Testament in most churches. Okay. Yeah. You gonna say something? Oh, I was just thinking, you know, is the old application of grace? Modern gospel presentation. I think as we've talked recently about the wrath of God and God bringing the conversation, right. people don't want to think about it. There's no really way to read the Old Testament without seeing those immediate consequences that it would take to produce the rest. So I don't think people like it. Okay, good. In fact, I would say that people almost, they wouldn't say this in our church, but they almost, in the back of their mind, have this notion that the God of the Old Testament is slightly different than the God of the New Testament. Reading the Romans, they're talking about Jesus saving us from God's wrath. So God saving us from God. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, good point. Nancy? It's just that it is so violent that we don't even want to go there. We're being revisited today with all the jihad stuff and all that. But it just seems that, that the two God and the way he's been taught to us through the years is that he is, you know, yeah, there's consequences, but there's like mass, horrific yeah. wipeout yeah, good. that this we haven't seen. Genocide and that yeah. Canaanite genocide. That is back now and we're going, oh, what terrible times are yeah. we Were you here when I did the lecture on the Canaanite genocide a couple weeks ago? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Kelly? Is it for sin, sin? People tend to they don't, not relate, but they don't want, they feel insufficient okay. and embarrassed because we couldn't do it on our own. Okay. It's that inner need who wants to do it on their own and the law is just like, okay. Right. Yeah, like in a very, very crude kind of way, very simplistic kind of way, the Old Testament basically says, you suck. 
And the New Testament is, here's your solution. So we like to talk about the solution, but we don't really want to talk about our sin. So in that sense, the Old Testament can seem a little more ominous and not as, not as apt to bring about joy or to lead into worship or to help me to feel better when my life is unraveling. That's not totally true. There's plenty of comforting passages in the Old Testament, but just speaking in general, and there's plenty of judgmental passages in the New Testament, but we tend to bifurcate. So this is why, this is why I've, for many, 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 many years, in fact, for as long as I've been preaching, have reminded people time and time again, stop talking about the age of the law and the age of grace. Stop talking about that. That's something that somebody, some preacher threw out, whatever, 100, 200 years ago, and it stuck. And it's, it's one of those cliche statements that weaves through the church, kind of like the error of free will. It's not even in the Bible, but people talk about it all the time. Free will, free will, free will, free will. Find it in the Bible for me. It's not in the Bible. That's, a, that's, a, that's language from philosophy. But you have words like that that creep into Christian lingo and language. And we just we hear it so much, we think it's true. That's the age of the law, this is the age of grace. That's the age. And it's just it's just not true. I mean, I'm I'm encountering a God that's pretty gracious time and time again into the Old Testament. And a God that calls us to high standards under the New Testament of order and behavior. I mean, read James. What do you do with James? It's all about good deeds. And then the reverse is also true. But we like to compartmentalize. And um, so we're going to kind of push back against some of this. Jack, what was your comment again? Because it, I thought someone else might comment on this, but it well, brought something to Yeah, so what did you say? Do you remember what you said? No. No. <laughs> Remember what you said? Memory loss. Yeah. Awesome. yeah, it was really good. Never. <laughs> 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 so I just find it being in grace. Yeah, it is, it's one eleven grace. Oh, okay. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. 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 So, um, let me give you an illustration of this. Um, let me give you an illustration of this. So you need to, I'm going to try to communicate this very clearly and select every word precisely, but hopefully I succeed at that, so you got to listen carefully. Um, it seems to me to be pretty clear that the scripture teaches us that we are justified by grace through faith alone. But when God justifies a person, one of the necessary results of that is good works. Mm -hmm. So the key word there is necessary. You could throw another word in, inevitable. Mm -hmm. Now, just kind of keep that in mind, and then let me make another statement. So you got a, someone that comes to you and says, uh, if God saves me, does that mean I'm always saved or can I lose my salvation? Okay. 
So if you think carefully about what they're asking, whether they know it or not, the question they're raising is, can God justify someone and then take the justification back through a lack of merit? And the answer to that is no. God doesn't take back justification through a lack of merit. Is tracking with me? But what that doesn't mean, okay, and this is how it's often interpreted. Oh, well, then if God will never take my justification back through a lack of merit, then I can live and do whatever I want. Okay, but that's contrary to the first statement, which is if you're truly justified, inevitably and necessarily, there will be good works demonstrated that will come out of your life. So, in actual fact, you cannot say you're justified if there are no good deeds that follow. So we, we preach, when we say salvation by grace, what we're actually saying is justification by grace. Because salvation involves more than justification. It involves sanctification, it involves our eventual glorification, etc. So if someone says, oh, are we saved by grace alone? Well, what do you mean by that? If you mean are we justified by grace alone, yes, we mean we're justified by grace alone. But what we don't mean is that you can be justified and not be sanctified. Because sanctification is a necessary result of justification. So this is how you have this is how you head off easy believism, because you have all these Christians running around, and what they think they're trying to do is, ma is maintain a high view of God's grace. So they say one saved, always say, one saved, always say, one saved, always say, one saved, always say, one saved, always say. We've all heard that, right? Over and over and over again. But too many people interpret that as, oh, then I can do whatever I want because God will never ultimately damn me for it. And that's false teaching. Because a true believer will bear fruit. Even if their fruit is just an expression of worship, the thief on the cross, he's saved, expression of worship, and then he's dead. He doesn't have time to share his faith or tithe to his church or you know, live a holy life or get his marriage squared up. There's not a lot of sanctification time he's got there. But his sanctification is demonstrated in, you're awesome, Jesus. And that's more than he had before he got on the cross. So every believer will demonstrate some measure of sanctification. And if you don't have it, then you don't have justification, best as we can tell. So this is why the Bible says, by their fruits you shall know them. You're like, what? So we can just tell who a Christian is by how they act? What about faith? Okay, just chill out. Very clear, justified by grace through faith alone. But we're not justified by a grace that remains alone. It results in good deeds. And so you can look someone straight in the face that's living in heinous, unconfessed, ongoing sin that says, yeah, but I'm saved. And you could say, no, you're not. Well, that's judgmental. <laughs> I'm just quoting the Bible here. If you don't have fruit, you're not saved. Period. You're just not. That's not Catholic teaching. Catholic te the Catholic Church teaches that your merits bring about your justification. We don't teach that. I've read the Catholic, not all of it, but I've read enough of the Catholic catechism. You're actually justified at the moment of your baptism. We don't teach that in our church. Um, 
We teach you're justified by God's sovereign grace, but that sovereign grace will result in good works. And so this is why this is this is why we can have Romans in our Bible, which focuses more on the act of justification and grace. And this is why we also have James in the Bible, which helps us to see the consequences, the results. And they're not contradictory. It's not like this is the Catholic epistle and this is a Protestant epistle. They present us with the full gospel. All right. So this is going to be helpful theology for when we talk a little bit more about law and the role of law in the life of the Old Testament believer and the New Testament believer. Because it's false to say the Old Testament believer is justified by their works. That's false. But sometimes we think that. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to start out with the most foundational summary of the law in the Bible. In Exodus 20. The Ten Commandments. So being that, all of the other laws hang off of the Ten Commandments. I think we're on safe ground. If we can demonstrate that the Old Testament law, known as the Ten Commandments, still applies to the church today, then we can't just toss out the law of the Old Testament. We have to, be able, we have to exercise a little more finesse when we're, we're looking at the laws of the Old Testament. So head on over to Exodus 20. And what you might want to do, I'm not going to write it all out for you because I'll get tired doing it. But just have Exodus 20 over here. And then we're going to give you some New Testament passages over here. And you're going to kind of write like 1 to 10 and then 1 to 10. So we're going to look at each of these Old Testament foundational laws, and we're going to see if those are found. Hear, hear these words carefully. As either a command or a commendation in the New Testament. So I'm just going to tell you straight up. The commands are not all commanded in the New Testament. But if they're not commanded, they're commended. You know what the difference is? They're recommended. They're they're. They're framed in a positive way. You should consider doing this. This is, this is good for you. I highly, highly recommend it. Well, really, if God highly recommends something, is that really much different than a commandment? No. So, a command or a commendation. The Ten Commandments, some of them are, 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 are kind of wordy, so I'm just going to give you the short form of them. So the first one is, you shall have no other gods before me, the second one is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, or you can just write down an idol. The third one is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So that's a blasphemy law. The fourth one is, remember the Sabbath day. So all of these, okay, the first three really are all about guarding the place, the role, the character of God in the way we worship. Then we have what you could call one ceremonial law, one, one commemorative law, one law that calls us to remember something, and that is remember the Sabbath day. And then we have several relational laws that uh, are also very like moral in nature. They're ethical in nature. So here they are. Honor your father and mother. 
don't murder. By the way, there are several different words in the Hebrew language that refer to the taking of life. I think there are seven. And if I recall correctly, the one for murder is the word harag, H-A-R-A-G. That's not the same as shooting an animal when you're hunting. It's not the same as an accidental homicide. It's not the same as an unintentional murder. It's not the same as killing someone in war. Those all have different words in the Hebrew language. They're, they're not synonyms. They have some overlap because it refers to the taking of life. But the, this translation is good. It says, thou shalt not murder, or you shall not murder. The Bible doesn't say, you shall not kill. Sometimes people like they think kill and murder are the same. No, it's not the same. In war, you could kill someone, or you could murder someone. But it's not the same. Because some deaths are justified. So I stress that because you got people running around, oh, I don't believe in capital punishment. Why? Because the Bible says you shouldn't kill. Really? Well, if that's what it means, then the Old Testament's pretty contradictory. Because it gives the commandment, and then it sends people out to kill off the Canaanites and kill people for violating God's law and on and on and on. So it doesn't mean that. This is a very specific word which refers to the intentional taking of a human life unjustly, which is forbidden. You shall not commit adultery. So adultery is the act of a married person having sex with another person that they are not married to. I had an older person in the church tell me lately, you should probably on occasion define adultery and fornication because I'm not convinced that most people even know what those words mean anymore. <laughs> so that's why I'm doing that. Fornication is the act of an unmarried person having sex with another person outside of marriage. So you could have two people having sex, and one's committing adultery and one's committing fornication because one's married and one's not. Or you could have two people having sex and they're both committing fornication, or two people having sex and they're both committing adultery. They're both sins, but adultery is worse because not only is it sex out of context, but it's sex out of context in violation with the covenant you made with someone else. And then you shall not steal. That's the eighth one. You shall not bear false witness. What does that mean? Just so we're all clear on that. What is false witness? And don't just say lying. What's false witness? It's a very specific kind of lying. Yeah. Okay, so he says testifying under oath that something's true about, about someone else that's false. So... Why, why would God, out of all the different things you could put into your top ten list, put bearing false witness in there? Think about this. Did, did you ever watch, um, it's a long time ago, so I think I got my show right. Have you ever watched any of the CSI shows, TV shows? Do you remember Horatio Cain? He's very irritating. I never liked his character. But he was the guy that could go into a scene and he'd see everything, right? He'd a little hair in the floor. All of a sudden he's figuring it out. He's following the clues. And 
in like 45 minutes or whatever, he solves every murder scene. So what does he have at his disposal? All these people in the lab, right? And it cuts in and out. They're running tests. They're under the microscope. And they're running DNA samples and scrolling through video feeds from the scene of the crime. And you know, on and on and on and on. Did they have any of that back in Moses' day? None. So what do you rely on for civil justice? Witnesses. If a person doesn't admit it, Oh, there's blood on the ground. Whose blood is it? Let's go get Horatio Cain's DNA kit. No, we don't have those yet. Go grab the microscope. Is that, is that hair from this person's head, or is it, did it fall off a camel? Don't have a microscope. Hadn't been invented yet. So the whole justice system rose or fell based on you telling the truth about what you saw. How different is it today when criminal defense lawyers actually get paid and everybody knows they're lying, but that's their job. Because their job is to get you off. Their job is not to help discover the truth or defend what's true or false. Their job is to get you off at all costs, right? And by the way, if you ever commit a crime and you're a Christian, the best thing you can do is to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, regardless of the consequences. If I murder someone, I'm not hiring a defense lawyer. I'm going to go tell that I killed somebody, and I will take whatever consequences they put my way. But it, some people in the church even think, oh, it's appropriate to, de to tell lies to defend yourself. Now, if you're falsely accused, that's different. Get a civil attorney or a defense attorney that can help you. But don't, you don't tell lies about the nature of the crime you committed. You tell the truth, you tell the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and whatever consequences the court imposes, that's just and right. And fortunately, they're about one-tenth of what you get under the Old Covenant. Okay, you probably get a slap on the wrist and a $50 fine. So bearing false witness. And then, uh, you shall not covet. What's covetousness? I want your stuff. I want your stuff. And that includes the person's wife, slave, animals, cart, whatever. Okay? So we got those down. Matthew 4.10. Matthew 4.10. Let's look at the New Testament. We're going to go down this list. And we're going to spend time doing this because we often talk about this, but I want to show you through the systematic reading of God's Word that every one of these commandments is either recommanded or commended in the New Testament. So Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. It, this, the, the scenario is Jesus, the beginning of his ministry, is taken into the wilderness by who? The devil. And the devil's ridiculously trying to tempt him to try to take him down in his humanity. This is the first time that, uh, from the incarnation of Christ onward, that Satan had an opportunity to attack God in the flesh. So he, if he was really smart, he wouldn't have done it because he knew he would have failed but he was testing Christ. So Jesus responds to him after he pushes him away. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So that is the New Testament equivalent of you shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus 
declares this to be true in the temptation he received from Satan. Let's go to 1 John 5, 21. Go ahead. Well, Jesus wasn't the Holy Spirit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Who, who knows what degree of knowledge the devil had about who Jesus was or what his power was? And in the broader narrative of the scriptures, this episode functions to show us that Jesus was tempted as we are yet overcame. That's its function. But it does raise some interesting theological questions. Why would the Satan do that? Like, come on. Can't take God down. So the best guess would be, well, Jesus is in human flesh. Satan had, begun, had gone around tempting humans for millennia now. And he was testing to see if there was weakness in Jesus' flesh that would cause him to buckle and succumb to uh, temptation. What's the second commandment? Idols. So 1 John 5, 21, the very last verse of 1 John. It's like, oh, I'm going to summarize my book. What can I leave you with? He leaves us with this statement. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So there you have it. Keep yourselves from idols. What's the third commandment? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So Matthew 6, 9. Now, this is not framed up as a not statement, but Matthew 6, 9 is the famous Lord's Prayer. And how does the Lord's Prayer start off? Anybody know? Our Father in heaven. Hallowed. What does that mean? Holy be your name. So in the Lord's Prayer, we are actually doing what God wants us to do and not breaking the commandment of taking God's name in vain. Rather, we declare that God's name is holy. Now, I want to make this statement. When God speaks of his name, what's your name? What's your name? What's your name? Okay. What's your name? Why did your parents give you that name? Anybody know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Abraham, Pete, or, or repeat. Yeah. Um, most people pick names because they like the sound of it. Right? But you wouldn't be any different if you were Susan, Gertrude, and Frank. Right? You still be the same person. You might have got teased a little more. <laughs> but it's just it's just letters that is applied to you. So we can say Jack. We can say David. Right? They're just it's just a word. There's nothing innately awesome about the word Aaron. It's just my name. There's nothing sacred or holy, it's just my name. I could be James, I could be whatever. It'd be the same guy. Because that's true, 
sometimes we have this very diminished view of God's name that somehow there's something magical about the arrangement of the letters. And if you're really biblically illiterate, you'll, you'll think that Jesus' name was Jesus. That's just an anglicized version of it. But you got people running around, I'm going to cast out demons in Jesus' name. Because there's like, it's like a hocus-pocus word. But there's something about saying J-E-S-U-S together with an exclamation mark at the end that forces demons to like extricate themselves from someone. That's not true. When we call upon the name of Yahweh God, Jehovah God, the Lord, the King of Kings, what are we actually doing? We're not using a bunch of letters to accomplish our purposes. We're calling upon the person and the power that that name represents. So the power is not in the word with the exclamation point at the end. The power is in the person that bears that name. And while there are many Jesuses, I had a student in Bible college, his name was Jesus. There's many Jesuses, you grew up in Venezuela, any, any Jesuses in Venezuela or is that like in other Spanish countries? Cristo, yeah. So these words, it's not like those people have superpowers. It's the, it's the person behind the name that, because you could have a guy named Jesus living in Venezuela that worships the devil. So the, the, it's not the jumble of letters. It's the person behind the name. And so when God's like, hey, keep my name holy, I mean, God has many names, does he not? You ever studied the names of God? There's a lot of names that God has. So I was like, well, which one are you talking about? It says, uh, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God. Like, is that just Yahweh? Or are we okay with swearing and using some other name that you have inappropriately? No, it's about reverencing the God behind the name. So when we say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, we're not even saying Yahweh, hallowed be your name, which is probably the immediate application of Exodus 27. But it's the same God. Here we're talking about Father, we hallow your name. Here, Yahweh, we hallow your name. But it's the same God. We're hallowing. We're keeping holy. Right? And then we have, remember the Sabbath day. So this is the one. This is the one that has the most flex to it because it's the only law that is ceremonial in function. But let's go to Mark 2, 27. I think this is an interesting passage because on one hand, Jesus is diminishing the importance of the Sabbath as a religious law or a ceremonial law He's diminishing this. He's pushing it down. But he's elevating it as a principle. Okay? Elevating it as a principle. So we're in uh, Mark 2, 27. Now, we've got to kind of read the context here, starting with verse 23, because here we have Jesus is out. It's on the Sabbath. This, so the Sabbath, by the way, is what, what day of our week. What, what's the Sabbath day? Okay, Saturday. Is everybody clear on that? So not Sunday, but it's because we have these um, 
like Saturday, Sunday weekends, we tend to think, oh, the week ends on Friday. It's like, thank God it's Friday. And then we have this weird little two-day thing in between. That's the weekend. And then we think, oh, everything starts again on Monday. So it kind of, we have to do a little mental adjustment here. In biblical thinking, the week starts on what day? Sunday. And it ends on what day? Saturday. And what does that mimic? Creation. Right? So how many days did God work? Six days. So we usually work like five, right? Typically in Western culture, people work Monday to Friday. God worked six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. So with this in mind, it's Saturday, Sabbath. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. So the Pharisees, who are the Pharisees? Jewish religious leaders, the minority group. There's the Sadducees and the Pharisees, but you hear about the Pharisees a lot more. Probably because they actually were, would be more lined up with Jesus' theology than the Sadducees were. The Sadducees were more very left, denied the resurrection, these kinds of things. But they were a pretty big group. So the Pharisees began saying, look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So before we go any further, what, what's their beef? He's working on the Sabbath. Okay. He's, he's picking yeah. the grains. Okay. But they kind of try to catch him every time because he's the Okay. You guys all hear that? It's supposed to be the Son of God. He breaks the law. He's picking grain. So... Just kind of think back to, I know we don't have a Polaroid of this or a um, you know, DVD, but just kind of picture the original Sabbath and Jesus is resting on the Sabbath. Can you picture that? Okay. Is he just doing like this? Just laying down totally still. Blinks one eye at a time. It doesn't want to be too exuberant. Like, is that rest? Is rest standing stone still? Not reaching for a bottle of water because you're thirsty? No. But the Pharisees had made it that. So a guy trip, falls into a hole. <laughs> Sorry, it's the Sabbath. You have to wait till tomorrow. <laughs> You're hungry. You're walking along. Oh, I'm going to pick a... Oh, that's so much effort. I pulled a ear of corn off, and I'm eating it. Can you believe they're breaking the Sabbath? This is how ridiculous it has become. So that's what Jesus is, is speaking out against. He's speaking out against this ridiculous... Like micromanagement, micro-application of the law, the Sabbath law. It's like, you're being so ridiculous. And, and we know this to be true because they did this time and time again. Nitpicking on things. So Jesus, I believe, is a bit of a rebel. He, he is doing these things deliberately, knowing how they'll respond to make a point to his broader audience. And by the way, I think that should be on some, and without taking it to the extreme, 
I think every modern preacher of the gospel needs to do this at some times and to make people uncomfortable. Because the, the, the typical image of the preacher is he just he always says what we already agree on. He just reinforces what we've already agreed on down to the nth degree. Never challenges, never I feel no obligation to do that. I feel totally free from preaching in the in the vein of Jesus to challenge and stretch and press people. And I'm 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 being challenged by it myself, by the way. I'm preaching to myself first and then to you. To challenge people because we, we, we so it's so easy to fall into these little boxes. Like this is the only way to do it. This is like this is how it's done. This is how we worship. This is how we stand. And this is how long our services are. And this is what you're allowed to say when you preach. And this is what you can't say. And this is how you have to be smiley in church. And you always have to be kind of nice and pretend that everything's awesome. And I just think that's a total load of. Because it's not true. It's not the way we live our lives. So instead of being hypocritical fakes and pretending that you know we got it all together, Jesus is always like kind of giving us a little one of these, right? He's not he doesn't do it to destroy, but he certainly does it to challenge and to shake us up a little bit. And we need to be shaken up a little bit because we don't like change by nature. We're creatures of comfort. And the older we get, the more challenging change becomes for most of us. So we're being challenged by Jesus. And I think there's just a principle there that should affect and infect our preaching today. And then we have, he said to them, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those with him, how they entered the house of God at the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence. So Jesus is actually using a greater, greater violation of the letter of the law to make his point. David entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence. This is like, hey, I'm hungry. I'm going to go finish off communion. It would be like somebody stumbles into our church and they're starving to death. And we're like, we don't have any, does anybody have food? Did you, get, did you bring a granola bar, Aaron? No. Uh, Jack, do you got a sandwich? No, no. What do we have? Do we have like anything? Well, we set it for communion. Oh, we can't do it. We let the guy starve to death. We can't. This is set aside for communion. No, we empty the trays and we start pouring it down the guy's throat. Okay? So that's what David did. So he goes and eats the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for any but the priests to eat. So what does that say? Remember this principle. Exceptions to rules do not necessarily violate rules, but in fact can reinforce them. How do they reinforce them? Because they reinforce the principle and the purpose behind them while potentially violating the application of them. Is that clear? I need to say it again. So Jesus here points to David, and it's like, yeah, he, on, on any given day, he shouldn't have eaten the bread of the presence. But sometimes there's exceptions to the rule. And when you make an exception to the rule in faith and in righteousness for a higher purpose, you're not actually violating the code, or you may be violating the code of the law, but you're kind of like elevating the principle behind it. Which is actually, which, which is to point people to the principle and take their mind off the code. Because that's what we tend to focus on, right? We're like little children. What should I do? What shouldn't I do? What's right? What's wrong? Just like, tell me what to do and I'll just go do it. And then I'll, I'll be awesome with Jesus. And Jesus is always pressing about heart issues and understanding and being led by the Spirit and 
So yeah, it's not like, we're not talking about taking that which is black and white and making it gray. It's not what I'm talking about at all. I don't, I don't think there's actually very many gray areas to the Christian life at all. I think it's mostly black and white. But sometimes the white is set aside, the code of the white is set aside in order to elevate the principle or purpose behind it. And if you want to call that a gray issue, fine. I'm not super comfortable with that language because I think people use that differently. But here we have, they eat the bread of the presence, and then he said to them, the Sabbath, so this is the principle, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That's like a totally like awesome response for two reasons. <laughs> the first one, in case you didn't catch it, is that he uses his violation of the code to teach the purpose of the Sabbath. That's, that's a, like a genius teaching technique. So people are looking at him thinking, he just broke the law. Jesus is like, no, actually, thank you for noticing, because now I'm going to tell you what it actually exists for. So we're not, I don't see in that a commandment, but I see a commendation. And so we can talk about Sabbath-keeping as a principle. We don't need to necessarily codify it down to Saturday only. But Sabbath-teaching as a principle that your body was not designed to work seven days a week. It just wasn't designed for that. And if you want to die young and have a heart attack, you know, this is a lesson that people like myself who, to my shame, lean toward workaholism, but I've learned to lean away from it somewhat in the last several years after I had a near burnout. This is a reminder that I'm not Superman and neither are you. Your body's organic, it's flesh and blood, and you need rest. And you need a fair bit of rest. So we're, we, we uh, are on fair ground to preach Sabbath principles to our people, right? So we have that. And then the second one, that I, the second statement is, he then uses it as an opportunity to present himself as the one who trumps the law. And it's like a veiled reference. Hey, you know that Sabbath law you're talking about? God resting on the Sabbath? Read between the lines. That was actually me. <laughs> so it's just totally awesome the way Jesus approaches this situation. So now we have these moral laws, honor your father and your mother, uh, Matthew 15, 4. Matthew 15, verse 4. Again, Jesus having a confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees. This time their big deal is like, why don't they wash their hands when they eat? Now, that's a good idea from a sanitary perspective. Um, you should wash your hands when you eat and when you go to the bathroom. So if any of you are in the habit of going to the bathroom not washing your hands, please don't do it when I'm ever in the bathroom seeing it because I will not shake your hand that day. <laughs> Just a little aside, okay? grosses me out. See people come out of the bathroom and not wash their hands. And then they're shaking everybody's hands. You put like a big sign on them. I did not wash my hands. Okay. 
Would you like to shake mine? <laughs> no. no, thank you. <laughs> so wash your hands. Um, so that's the debate. And then, oh, what verse are we at here? Verse 4. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. And if you say, but you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you should have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So now we find out that they had taken this, one of the top ten commandments, and they had created this little notion, well, it's kind of like saying, so let's say that you have uh, aging parents or something, and they're in need, and I don't know, they're starving. And they call you, and they're like, I have no groceries. And you're like, sorry, I can't help you. Oh, but I thought you had some money. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm tithing that to my church this week. Don't do it. That's wrong. You have a responsibility to meet the needs of your mother and father as an expression of honor before you give your money to the local church. That would be like an example of that. Now, on a, on a regular basis, you would give your money to the local church. But again, there's exceptions to the rule, right? You've got a justice issue here. Someone's starving to death. This, this is not the same as your mom and dad want to buy a fourth vehicle. Mm-hmm. But it's, there's, a, there's a justice issue on the line. You have a responsibility. The Bible says, he who does not provide for his own is worse than an infidel. So don't come run into the church benevolent fund officer every time your relative has a need. That responsibility lies on your shoulders. That's an expression of honoring your father and your mother. So Jesus is just like putting a lot of uh, emphasis on this one here and elevating it. So the next one is, you shall not murder. So Romans 13, 9. We got a whole bunch of them here. We can check off one, two, three, like four. Just in one verse, Romans 13, 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, check. You shall not murder, check. You shall not steal, check. You shall not covet, check. And then this catch-all term. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love the Lord or you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So because these are all relational in nature, Jesus uses them to build a case for his ultimate commandment, which is love. But he doesn't negate them. And in fact, all of these things are spoken of elsewhere in the scriptures. And then we got one more which I haven't found yet, and that's bearing false witness. So Matthew 15, verse 19. Telling stuff about people that isn't true or not telling the truth in a court of law. Matthew 15, 19. This is not this is not the same as erroneously believing something. This is telling something that is not true. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts. And here's some of these things again: murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat, eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone, spiritually. Spiritually. 
So, we have ten commandments, all of which are repeated in the New Covenant, either as a commandment or as a commendation. Now, out of the Ten Commandments, I've never gone through the Bible and counted how many commandments there are, but some people have, and I believe there are over 600 commandments in the Levitical law, the, the Torah law, that are applications of or flow out of those Ten Commandments. Now, some of those are civil laws. Some of those are ceremonial laws. Some of those are moral laws. So, a moral law, very simply, is a law that is innately right or wrong through all of time. Prior to the Old Covenant, it was wrong. Under the Old Covenant, it's wrong. Under the New Covenant, it's wrong. It'll always be wrong. So what would be some examples of those? Murder. Okay, murder. What else? Stealing. Stealing. What else? Adultery. Adultery. Lying. Mm -hmm. What? Idolatry. Idolatry. Why are these innately wrong? So you've got to think, who's the creator? So think about the character of God. This is how you determine if a law is innately moral. Does it somehow attack or diminish or violate the character of God? So does God ever lie? No. Is God, how could he be, promiscuous? No. Is God, um, what? Does God worship other gods? No. So they're innately wrong because they attack the character of God himself. A civil, uh, let's go to ceremonial law. What's the purpose of religious ceremony in the scripture, both in Old Testament and New Testament? New Testament, we have ceremonies like laying out of hands, um, anointing with oil, baptism, Lord's Supper. What was that? Okay, the purpose of them, yeah. So I was just rattling off some examples. Ultimately to glorify God, but what, what do ceremonies innately accomplish that non-ceremonies don't accomplish? Perfect. They help us to remember. They serve as reminders. In addition to that, we can add the word their celebrations. They celebrate what God has done in a person's life or in the life of his church. So they, they serve the purpose of reminding. So the question is, what do I need to be reminded of? Well, the I don't need to be reminded of the need to make atonement for my sin by offering an animal on a sacrifice on an altar every day because Jesus is the once for all sacrifice for sin. But prior to Jesus, you had to do that. So we have different laws under the Old Covenant than we do under the New Covenant when it comes to the sacrificial laws. We could say they no longer apply, and rightly so. We could say that's Old Testament. 
Let's not be dismissive of them, though, because there's still something we can glean from that. We'll come back to this in a minute. There's still something that's really important about the Old Testament sacrificial system that's really relevant for today. But the ceremonial function has ceased. We have different ceremonies to celebrate. And then what are, what are, what are civil laws? Now, civil laws can at times be tied to moral issues, but not always. So what would be a, an example of a, a, a land-related civil law under the Old Testament? Okay. Eat their stuff. There's, there's reparations that have to be paid. Um, this is, this is um, really important as well for us to understand that when you repent, uh, sometimes you also have to repair the damage that's done. So the illustration would be if I, I don't know, steal your phone and you confront me and I don't give it back and you confront me again and finally I'm like, okay, I, I'm sorry for stealing your phone. Is that enough? What do I need to do? Give him his phone back. Pay the monthly charge. Now what if, okay, no, this is good. What if I've stolen it for a month and this guy's had to go buy another one because I wouldn't give it back? I need to pay him some money. So when we repent, sometimes we have to repair the damage that's been done. So if we've robbed God, we owe God. You don't have to say, oh, sorry, God, for robbing you. We owe God. We make up for it. If we've robbed another person, if we've ruined someone's reputation, if we've slandered, if we've gossiped, it can be kind of awkward, but it's totally freeing to go to that person and say, I want to let you know I repented toward the Lord, and I believe I've made it right, but I need to let you know that I kind of trashed your reputation, and I'm sorry for that. And I'm going to go talk to those people that I told falsehoods to and make it right. Or I stole your stuff. And um, I'm going to give it back, or sorry, it broke, I don't have it, I'm going to buy you whatever it is that I took. This is really important for us to understand, because sometimes we think, oh, it's just between me and Jesus. I'm right with Jesus, so I don't need to apologize to anybody. Now, obviously, we need to exercise some discretion and some discernment, maybe seek the counsel of people, like if it's something we did 40 years ago, we don't even know where that person is. Well, sometimes you, you can't actually make amends. Um, but to the best of our ability, we do. That's the right thing to do. So civil laws in the Old Testament serve that purpose. And if, if um, your animal, so you got this big old bull, and he's an ornery thing, and he goes and tears up everybody's field, and you know it, and you put a a quarter-inch rotten rope on his neck, that's not responsible. You should put a big old chain on him. If he breaks the rope and goes and runs and tramples everyone's crop, all of a sudden their livelihood's on the line. You're like, sorry. No, you need to pay him back. So there's, a, there's all kinds of laws under the Old Covenant about repairing the damage, paying reparations for what you've done wrong. And then there's civil laws about land ownership. So do you remember the, the whole um, year of Jubilee thing? It's pretty fascinating, actually. It's, it's, like a, it's like a combination of capitalism and socialism. So it's capitalistic in the sense that 
The rich can get richer for 50 years. <coughs> you're not good with your money, or you're broke, you can't tend your field. You can actually sell off the land that's been given to your forefathers to other people to use so they can get wealthier. But every 50 years, they hit a restart button, and everybody gets their land back. So if you, if you, can, give the, if you can sell the land and it has 49 years left in the lease, you get quite a bit of money for it. If it has six months left, you're not going to get much. That's the idea. But God's hitting the restart button, hitting the restart button, hitting the restart button, so that if the people obey these laws, land ownership returns to the original family. This keeps returning. Unfortunately, the people of God disobeyed God more often than not, and, that, and this is why the prophets come and speak against injustice and all that kind of thing. So on one hand, God's giving people opportunity based upon their economic status to succeed, but he's also created mechanisms in society for people to kind of get some of that back and have an opportunity to start over every few generations or so. Um, so we have those kinds of laws. So we would say anything moral in nature under the Old Covenant still applies today. Anything ceremonial in nature may or may not, or there may be an Old Covenant ceremony that has a New Covenant equivalent. What would be an example of that? Okay, yeah, so Passover... I'm just thinking of like a biblical one, so I'm going to take it a little bit further for you. Passover and the Lord's Supper in particular. So it's not the same, but the Lord's Supper is a form of a continuation of the ceremonial aspects of the Passover into the new. Okay? And in the civil law, well, interestingly... A fair bit of modern civil law is based off of these kinds of laws from the ancient Near East. And in fact, even prior to the writing of the Mosaic Law, there were other nations that already come up with some of these laws. So have you heard of some of them, like the Law of Hammurabi? This predates the Old Covenant Law, but it's, it's a legal code. It's a, it's a legal text that has all these... It's often like if-then, if-then. It's scenario-driven. It, it, it provides a framework for the governance of people. And liberal scholars look at that and say, oh, the Old Testament is just a copy of uh, a retooling of Hammurabi's laws. I'm saying, no. But why would we not expect, if all truth is God's truth, for the things that God has communicated to Moses that are codified in the Old Covenant to also be found at times in other laws, because God is working elsewhere, the law of God is written on the human heart, that kind of thing, you're going to see some common notions of morality. That's like saying, that would be like erasing dates and saying, oh, well, because some aspects of Canadian law reflect the Mosaic law, the Mosaic law really isn't original and really isn't all that awesome, so who cares? Like, it doesn't have to be exclusively in the Bible to be wholly true is my point. So just be careful on how you uh, process some of those claims. <clears throat>